Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. A lot has been going on this week. Uh, a lot of racial tensions are, and in my opinion, I feel like the media is really uh, fanning the flames on that. And, you know, there was a shooting in Dallas. Uh, five police officers were killed. Uh, so a lot's been going on this week. Um, but back on for this episode, I have former uh, Army sniper Nick Betts. Uh, Nick owns a company called Crypto Strategic. Uh, Nick was on uh, maybe two months ago or so. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, around there. And uh, so, Nick, it's good to have you back on, brother. How's it going? Good, man. Good. All right. So, you know, we'll start with the Dallas shooting. You know, obviously, that's the hot topic. Everyone's talking about it. One thing that you were talking about on social media is how the media was labeling the the shooter as a sniper, and that seemed to bother you a little bit. Why is that? I well, first of all, now now that all the information has been published and what is known about the shooter has been made public knowledge, um, he wasn't a sniper. He wasn't even infantry. Um, even then, he wasn't. He wasn't even a very well-trained individual. He was National Guard or Reserves, I believe. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, he did six years in in the Army, and after that six years, he only reached the rank of PFC, which anybody that serves or is active knows that that is not an admirable feat. And they're saying that he was a decorated war veteran, which uh, and and I think that he had an AAM or an ARCOM. But either way, an AAM is an Army Achievement Medal, and an ARCOM is an Army Commendation Medal. And they throw those things out like candy. It's, you know, you do a good job in a field problem or you do a good job during, you know, some battalion layout and, and you're going to get awarded this medal. So it doesn't, it's not an award of an active valor. It's not like he was a prestigious service member. He was, to be quite honest, he was a piece of crap. And so to be labeled as a sniper and like he was, um, it degrades everything that not only myself, but everybody that is sniper qualified within the entire military throughout all branches has achieved, which it's, it's a difficult school, obviously, depending on which one you go to, whether it's, you know, through the SEALs, through the military, um, SODIC, if you're special forces in, in the army, whatever it may be. And, you know, we look at this and the guy Ultimately, he had a Sega AK-74. Like I said, I could be mistaken. This is all BS that I'm hearing from the military. But it, it, it's, a piece of, it's, it's a piece of shit weapon system. And they labeled him a sniper because, what, he was on the second story of a parking garage and he was wounding and killing officers uh, at, at a larger rate than just a mass shooting of spraying and praying. And so to, to label this guy as a sniper is... It, it's disrespectful, it's inaccurate, and they just want to throw around the term. And they throw it around so loosely just because this, this guy ended up killing, you know, five police officers. And it just, it made my blood boil. And it's constant. And it doesn't matter what news channel it is. It doesn't, it doesn't matter uh, what, what form of information that you're getting this from. He's, he's labeled as a sniper. And like I said in my social media post, if, if it was a sniper and if this dude was sniper qualified, A, he's not going to be, you know, 10 feet above you in a parking garage student shooting cops. He's going to be five, 600 meters out 
in an elevated position with a proper hide site back 10 to 14 feet in a room with a 45 degree veil over the window. And he is just going to be wreaking havoc on these people. And you're not going to know where he's at. And you're not going to ever find, find him, to be honest with you. And he's going to take out a lot more than five police officers. So it's, it's, it's uh, social media and, and publicity at its worst. And that, that would be different. Like, do you remember a couple of years ago, uh, there was that DC sniper? And, I do. And I think he was like shooting people out of the back of his trunk or something like that. Would you consider that guy a sniper more than the guy in Dallas? Uh, yes. Um, obviously, he wasn't a sniper either, but his TTPs or tactics, techniques, and procedures was far more advanced and far more thought out than this current individual. And what's even worse about the DC sniper, because, and I'm not from the East Coast, but I remember vividly the utter chaos that was going on um, in the Northeast. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that was like Maryland, DC. Um, like that that upper area oh, up yeah, there, definitely. And there was there was no specific targets that he was targeting. He was targeting civilians. He was targeting uh, anybody, anybody that he could get a clean shot on. He was targeting, and he was doing it from the trunk of his car. With it was either through the like the brake light area or it was through the lock on the trunk. He he had created a loophole. That's what we call it, and he was just taking people out. And what's so brilliant about that, if you want to call it brilliant, is he would shoot, he would wound or kill, and then he would move out. His son would drive him out or, uh, you know, whoever was shooting the weapon at that time. And they would drive out and they'd move to a different location. So that is the, the utter chaos that snipers in the military that we are meant to inflict on the enemy. Um, you know, granted, we have a little bit more specific targets. We're going to hit RTOs, radio telephone operators. We're going to hit machine gunners. We're going to hit fellow snipers uh, just because those are the most casualty-producing weapon systems. Those are the most casualty-producing people, and they're the, the higher-value target. But if you're not in a war zone and you're just hitting random people, there's no rhyme or reason. So the police are going to be completely lost as far as tracking you down. And the way that he even got caught you know, by a truck driver with the known plates and description of the vehicle that he was possibly driving in, that was by chance. This dude could have kept that up for years and they never would have caught him. And if he honestly probably would have moved out of the East Coast and went, you know, started moving his way around the country, it it could could have gone on for a long time. Yeah, and I know aside from the the fact that snipers are deadly and and like you said you have specific targets, guys that you place more value on when you can see them maneuvering through the battlefield is the, the psychological effect, you know, like guys don't want to move because they know there's a sniper out there. And I remember, so I, I live in New York, and when this D.C. sniper guy was, was shooting people, people were talking about like, oh, you know, what would be, how would you stop a guy from going into a skyscraper or, you know, some tall building and just shooting people and moving and, you know, you would never find them. And I remember the, the kind of stress that, you know, for however long it lasted, that kind of stress it produced on people, uh, just knowing that there's a sniper out there shooting people. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, and and that's that's exactly what the military intends with us in the end state after our training and after we become operational. Like that's what the the military and the government wants us to put on our targets. You don't know where it came from, 
you don't know how far away it from, you know, was. You don't know if it was elevated, if it was online with your current position. It's all the unknown. So imagine you and your boy are walking down the street and your boy takes a round and he just falls down. You don't know where it came from. You don't know if he got hit in the back or you don't know if he got hit in the chest or you don't know if he got hit from the side. So from my perspective, at that point, I don't know what cover really is because you obviously want to put cover and concealment in between you and your enemy. So if I don't know where the round came from, I don't know where to hide, except for obviously inside. So that type of uh, mental detriment that that an actual sniper causes is um, it's it's terrible, and that is what we are meant to do, and it works really well in the enemy, and that's not what the uh, Dallas sniper did. He didn't do that, so he's not he's not a sniper. Right, and you know it's and it's just kind of like I don't want to say funny, but it's ironic that. You know, it, it turns out the Dallas PD they actually have a a great record of having open relations with the community and engaging with their local community, and they actually help the Black Lives Matter protesters organize the event, and uh, and they were taking pictures with them with with the protesters and and uh, posting on social media and all these things, and it seemed like a very peaceful kind of protest. It wasn't anything you know extra. And, that, that's, and that's then, then the guy just like. turns around and starts shooting them. You know what I mean? It was kind of crazy. Yeah, and, and to think that the, the backlash is still there even after that. And you had that poor woman who was shot in the leg um, by the, the Dallas sniper. Well, see, I just, I just screwed up. I even called him a sniper. But <laughs> by the Dallas shooter, um, she was shot in the leg, and she was sitting there commending the police officers for providing cover and concealment and using his own self to protect her from the fire. Um, it was it was a perfectly peaceful protest, and that's that's America, and and that's what our police were doing was allowing those individuals to you know protest, speak their mind, and do it peacefully, and and you know let the community know and let the world know that you know that they have different feelings than, than everybody else. And the police chief in Dallas came out and acted like a boss, in my opinion. And, you know, I've heard various things about his son was killed by police and he was a multiple felon, but that's, that's irregardless. But he came out and handled it like a boss and said, you know what, if, if you want change, we're hiring and, and come join. And I, I, I think that that situation was handled perfectly as far as that goes. Um, but, you know, I, everybody's a critic and everybody's a politician and everybody's a lawyer. And at the end of the day, People are still giving grief about the fact that the the Dallas PD drove a, a robot in there and blew that dude up without fair trial. Like <laughs> the guy had an AK seventy four and a bulletproof vest on and just shot five police officers and, and wounded what eleven or twelve. And now you're giving DPD shit for blowing him up. Like yeah. I mean, I, I've never heard of that TTP before, but. I, I'm not opposed to it. You know, it saved multiple police officers' lives, especially if SWAT had to go in there. And and they they made that decision on the ground. And that's the one thing that a lot of people don't understand is you have the people that are higher up making decisions on the opposite end of the radio. They're like, no, don't do this. Oh yeah, do this. But ultimately, the decision comes down to the guys that are on the ground. And the guys that were on the ground said hostage negotiations um, failed. And they couldn't talk him down, and he wasn't going to resist. And he said that he just wanted to kill people. He wanted to kill white police officers. 
And so, you know what? Instead of sacrificing my police officers' lives, we already lost five. I'm not going to lose six, seven, eight, nine. I'm just going to blow you up, and you're done. Yeah, I even think there was a, a, a bomb threat. I think the guy was <clears throat> was saying that he planted, like, bombs around Dallas. So I think that's what got the, those bomb robots out there to begin with. And, you know, you're right. It's like I'm not a constitutional lawyer or anything like that, but... You know, I would imagine that the the rules of, you know, the protections that afforded to him, I think they they would go out the window. I mean, the the guy just killed five police officers, and and not only did he wound other officers, he also wounded civilians as well. And it, it didn't look like he was ready to to uh, turn himself in anytime soon. You know, he had his rifle loaded, he had his vest on, and 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 he, the negotiations did break down. So I'm I'm not sure exactly what rights are afforded to an individual in that situation. He, he threw them all out the window as soon as he you know, shot the first person. And it was undoubted. I, I could understand if maybe it was a suspect. Like in the very beginning, there was a suspect or a person within that rally that was open carrying, uh, fully utilizing his Second Amendment rights and walking down the street. And they plastered his face all over the media and said, you know, this is our suspect. But come to find out, you fast forward a day later, this suspect laid down his arm, put his arms up, went down in the prone and said, I'm, I'm not the shooter. You know, I'm completely innocent. And they've, they checked it out and they cleared this guy and he was cleared. Uh, but they were looking for the first person with a rifle and he just so happened to be it. And it's just, it just goes to, to perpetuate the fact that the media will, I mean, they put his, they put his name everywhere and yeah. he could have been killed if anybody had saw that and be like, oh, I see this guy and he's, you know, at McDonald's just after the protest and he gets laid to waste because they think that, you know, they're going to be a hero by killing the, the quote unquote Dallas sniper. So it's, it's just, it's an awful situation and the, the media wholeheartedly is to blame for a lot of it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I feel like uh, things do happen, mistakes happen, you know, cops do kill people. Cops kill people who are armed and who are a threat to them or to anyone else, um, you know. And then, but cops also deal with uh, people who are mentally ill. Um, you know what I mean? So there's, there's so many factors that goes into play when a cop is approaching a car or you know approaching someone who fits a description for you know a robbery or a shooting that just happened. So, and I, I feel like the Dallas police chief. He he laid it out real well where he was saying that um, society asks too much of police officers where you have to deal with mental illness. You have to deal with the most dangerous criminals. You have to deal with all these different things that lead up to what, you know, them approaching a suspect or something like that. And I, I think he had a very good speech. I think he brought up some great points. And I think also for... All of the uh, backlash that uh, former President George Bush, George W. Bush gets, I think he had a very good speech as well. He did. And, and that's another thing that really, honestly, kind of did not sit well with me is I saw that, obviously, President Obama and then former President Bush were attending uh, the, the memorial for those, those police officers that were slain. And Bush went out there, and I thought that he had a great speech, and it was very non-political, and it was very apologetic and sincere. 
And at the same time, Obama comes out there and he starts pushing gun control legislation and saying that it's easier to buy or to, you know, to buy a Glock than, than a book. It, like, are you insane? Like, in what context do you think that that's okay to bring up politics yeah. when the, the grieving children, the grieving wives, the grieving mothers, the grieving fathers of these fallen police officers are in attendance and you're sitting here pushing a political agenda? Like, sit down, dude. Sit down. Yeah. Or it, I, I, somebody wrote your speech, obviously. I know it wasn't you because you're the, you're the effing president. But that, that should have been controlled. And it should have been nothing but sincere apologies and regret for the fallen police officers. And it should have been a public statement that the government is going to do everything within their power to uh, help prevent this in further situations, to help, uh, you know, train police officers to help get them better at escalation of force, moving from hand and fist to tasers to non-lethal to an, an end state being lethal force with, with pistols. And I think that that would have been a little bit more appropriate than coming out straightforward and been like, you know what, this is, this is a gun control problem and this is you know, a, a, a racial tension issue. And, and I don't know the motives of this shooter. It's like, you don't know the motives. What are you talking about? Yeah. Like th this guy said that he set out to kill white police officers because he supports the, the BLM movement. And granted, he's not speaking for everybody on the BLM movement because there's plenty of, of individuals that are pro black lives matter, but are not pro police being murdered. Right. And so, so to come out and during their memorial service, I think was the most dis disrespectful thing that he's done in his entire presidency. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's just. And, and, and one thing I feel like that needs to happen now and going forward is people assuming leadership of, of this issue and trying to diffuse it so that it's not so combustible, you know, like something happens and everybody's going crazy, you know, mistakes do happen. And, and, and one thing I, I did, like, I saw, um, these two rappers from the West coast, uh, Snoop Dogg in the game. That was good. That was yeah, real good. I yeah, saw that. They, they led a like very peaceful kind of congregation of people, of people from their neighborhoods to, I think the police headquarters. And they basically set up dialogue with the police officers and said, look, you know, we live here. Let's talk. Let's let's be on the same page, and let's not continue more of the same crap. You know, with us hating you guys, you guys being, uh, you know, hyper alert and and you know having some fear that someone's targeting you, and that you know what I mean. And I, I thought that was that is what people need, and I think Re that's the kind of things that need to happen going forward. I think that's what that's what they respond to, especially, and not to generalize for the, the African American community or the BLM community, but it's it's those very influential individuals like Snoop Dogg, like The Game, and uh, you know the many other rappers that you know we all listen to. I think it's time for those people within celebrity positions to come out and be like, "Listen, this isn't an, an us movement versus them movement. This is." us coming together and, and finding a resolve and putting, you know, like extinguishing the situation. Like we all need to work together to fix this. And you, you know, you have all the celebrities that are very pro BLM and you have other celebrities. Well, obviously I don't know. <laughs> I, I haven't seen any celebrity that's anti BLM, 
but it Snoop Dogg and the game did it right. They they are essentially trying to hold hands of the police officers in the right hand and in the Black Lives Matter protesters in the left hand. They're like, listen, we can all make this work if you stop hating each other or if you stop thinking that everybody is the enemy. And that I think is one of the ways that we can move forward with this matter in order to help defuse the situation. But the media is not helping that at all. And I think the media is to blame. Yeah, it's funny. I I saw the newspaper in New York yesterday. I, I think it was the, I don't remember if it was the Daily News or the New York Times, one of those papers. And it was, it said something to the effect of everybody needs to come together and we need to stop acting this way and stop pointing the finger. But I thought, how ironic is it? It's because it's the media that creates that hype. You know what I mean? If if you look at the actual numbers, crime has gone down. Um, the number of police killed on duty has gone down. So overall, things aren't as bad as the media makes it seem. And, and you know, uh, a guy gets killed by a police officer, right? Obviously, with you know, in the social media age, if there's a video or something like that, the, the word will spread regardless of the media. But I feel like the media does fan a lot of the flames. And it's just ironic that they'll then turn around and say, oh, we need to come together after they made everybody crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's so hypocritical. And I don't, you know, the, the whole freedom of speech thing, I, I wholeheartedly believe in because I, I, I love my constitution and I love my country. But there, there gets to a point where it should be illegal to publicize and make public false information. Yeah. You're, you're, you're titling this guy a sniper. Is he a sniper? No. All right. Well, you know what? You're in the wrong and we can take criminal action. Um, you know, did this actually happen? You're, you're, you're labeling, this is your headline. Is this actually true? And no. Okay. Well then, you know what? We can prosecute you because you're, you're publicizing false information. And I think that the media needs to be held accountable and held to stricter laws as far as their freedom of speech. Because right now it's, 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 it's a no holds barred. You can just publish whatever the hell you want. And it's it's not acceptable. Yeah, I agree, and I I think that, I, I forget the exact law, but there was a I think it might have been the late seventies or early eighties that there there used to be some kind of law in place that um, held these news uh, companies to a higher standard, mm-hmm. and then you know like that that law expired and they they didn't uh, renew it. I forget the exact name, but I remember reading about this once, and I just thought it was very interesting. And um, and I do agree, though. I think that you know the same way that the government has checks and balances. I think the the media has a, should have a, a very high responsibility to report honest news and to be truthful. Because look, when you're reporting things a certain way, you know you just enraged. 85% of the African-American community in the country, you know, and then, and then it causes problems. And now, and then this guy, this shooter in Dallas is a perfect example of that, you know, he, he served in the U S army. I'm not exactly sure what his function was. Um, engineer, I believe is what I heard. Engineer. Okay. So he's engineer in the U S army gets out and I guarantee, you know, he is, reading the newspaper, seeing these news reports, and it, it threw him into a rage. And he, you know, he took action and he killed police officers. And I think a huge uh, 
amount of the responsibility should fall on the media for that because of the way they report things and the way they'll tell you one side of the story and not the other, the way they'll talk about, oh, you know, police have killed uh, this many African-Americans, but, you know, without showing you the full scale and scope of how many people were killed by police, what race were they, how many police officers were killed, you know what I mean? Without giving you the full picture and, and it leads to things like that, like the Dallas shooting. Right. And you, you know what's even more unfortunate uh, by this uh, that I actually experienced today is I posted obviously something on my social media account. And one of uh, the soldiers that I actually served with uh, commented on the situation and commented on my post and was very anti-police and was talking about how murderous they are and how they need to be held accountable. And I tried to have a dialogue with him in order to kind of get us to a common understanding, but it got to a point where I realized that I was doing nothing but just perpetuating this hate that he had for police. And I didn't know necessarily where it came from. And it got to a point where I was like, you know what? Outside of this, we haven't talked on social media. So I, I deleted him from, from my account and we're not going to associate anymore. And it's sad because I served with this guy and I trusted him with my life. He was a good soldier and he really was. But the reason why all this is happening, I want to try to put this in context. So with all the, the, the doctors that are conducting surgeries and misdiagnosis, like, there's a lot of deaths involved with that. But nobody is outraged and making it public, and the media is not making it public, over malpractice suits, over doctors mistreating patients and killing them accidentally. But that's because that doesn't sell. That's because that's not news. Nobody cares about malpractice. Now, if it was news, if somebody said, oh, this doctor you know, killed somebody due to negligence during a surgery, you're not going to hear anybody talk about it. I'm not going to hear my friend that I just deleted on, on social media talk about it because he's not an effing doctor. So he's going to know that there's no ground to stand on. But how does that not coincide with the fact that he's sitting here talking on matters that he wasn't involved? He wasn't there for the Baton Rouge shooting. He wasn't there for the Dallas, uh, you know, massacre. So you're not a cop. What what gives you the right or the grounds to to talk about this? And it's it's just an ongoing situation that is ultimately dividing people. And I see it firsthand, and I'm sure you see it firsthand. So it's I don't know necessarily what what is ever going to become of it, but. I personally think that the media is at fault. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, man. Um, so maybe like five months ago, six months ago, um, you wrote an article. I, I read it. I think you, you put it up on your website, right? That's where you yeah. first released it? Okay, so I read it. Um, and then, of course, with your permission, I threw it up on my site. And, you know, we were spreading it all over social media. And it got a lot of attention uh, because people thought it, I thought it was important. Um, and then what I noticed is some of the feedback from the article were from soldiers who served, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. And that's how I knew right there that it was a, a great piece of writing, uh, when soldiers from different eras were relating to it. So can we talk about this article a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I was in my room, I was in Baghdad and I had been texting back and forth with a fellow soldier of mine 
from way back in the day, like circa 2006, 2007 when I was Ramadi. And he was, he was going through some problems. Uh, he's been seen the VA. He was on medication. Uh, at the time that we were talking, he was intoxicated. He was drunk. And he was not, he was not in a very good spot. And our time zones were so different because I was here in Baghdad at the time. And so I ended up talking to him and kind of talking him down off the cliff and everything ended up working out good, thankfully, after you know, a pretty extensive phone conversation. And so I woke up the next morning, went through my normal routine, went to the gym, had a cup of coffee, came back to my room, and my mind was just thinking nothing about this. And so I ended up writing this article called Societal Alienation, My Perspective on the 22. And the 22 being 22 veterans uh, that commit suicide a day. And so I wrote this article and honestly, it, it just kind of fell out of my fingers. I was just, it was one of those kind of perfect storm type of things where everything that I was thinking was in the proper context and it just went down on paper really well. And so I ended up writing this article, proofreading it and sent it to my buddy to proofread and ended up publishing it on the website and the amount of response that I got was phenomenal, which is kind of strange too, because I, I feel like it's one of the most um, intricate and, and relevant articles that I've written so far, but it's not as, uh, it, it didn't get as much notoriety as a lot of the other, other articles that I've written, but uh, it, it ended up coming out really well. Yeah. Well, you know, part it's, it's interesting. Part of that kind of gets into that. Um, certain things are more appealing regardless of the subject, you know? And, yeah. and that's part of why, even though I don't agree with it, but, and you, I don't know, you, you don't agree with it, but that's part of why the media puts out some of the things that they do because they know that it's going to generate uh, views or, or downloads or whatever it is. Um, so basically like the crux of this article is, is you discussing how, after you came home from war, you were you were changed. You weren't the same, and uh, and then basically dealing with society, like dealing with civilians who haven't experienced war, and then or even dealing with people who haven't experienced that that brotherhood that you experienced when you deploy into a war zone, um, and 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 that's something that I know that affects pretty much every combat guy, and I guess to different levels though. It does, and, and it all depends on your background, your MOS, your experiences, whether you're special operations or regular army, whether you're Navy or Coast Guard. I mean, it, it spans the gamut, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean to say that every single one of those individuals from every different branch can't feel the same way. And it got to a point where I'd been in various Facebook groups and seen veterans come out and, and have an outcry for help. They'd be like, hey, I need help. I'm hurt for money and blah, blah, blah. And I'd feel really bad. Well, then I'd look through these groups that I'm involved in and I would see that only two weeks prior, the same individual that was asking for help that had this outcry said, you know what? I just started my job at UPS and F those guys because, you know, my boss was a dick and he, you know, he just doesn't know and he's only 24 and, you know, I can't listen to somebody like that. And this is just re ridiculous. So I just had to walk out. And, and But he would say this boastfully. And 
I'm thinking to myself after I see all, and, and, and this isn't just one person. I've, t- I've seen this many times about how these veterans had gone in there with this, this air of arrogance and um, self-entitlement. And it's like, you know what, you don't know what I've done. And I was in E6 when I got out or I was a sniper. Or I was, you know, special force. And it's like, no one gives a shit in the civilian world. No one cares what you've done. And after I've got out, a lot of my mentorship with people that I've served with that ended up getting out after me have come to me and be like, you know, Nick, how do you do it? And, you know, how was things? And what kind of advice can you give me? And I'm the first person to jump on that bandwagon and help them out. Like, listen, like, this is what you need. Because I have had really high points in my life after separation from the military. And I have had incredibly low points in my life after separation from the military. And my low points weren't, they weren't mental. I was never suicidal, but it was financial struggles. And it was having an incredibly, an incredible difficulty trying to find a job because my, my background in the military is reconnaissance and, and sniper. And I did eight years doing that. And let's be honest, that job does not transfer over to the civilian realm. That job, there's, there's no jobs for me in San Diego, California, where I live. And tr- I tried. I tried the damnedest to, to try to find something, anything that I could get into. And I'm, I was not picky. I, I would have sold insurance. I would have, yeah, I, I bartended. Um, anything. But when people see my resume, when civilians see my resume, I can't hide the fact that I did eight years in the military. And when they ask you to break down what you did in those eight years, my job title is obviously different. So you have to separate that in your, uh, in your resume. And so how do you try to put battalion sniper section leader in the most civilian and uh, diplomatic of terms, I, I guess, for lack of a better word. And I, I can't. So I just said I was a senior leader in charge of, you know, eight younger uh, commission officers. Like, it, it just sounds stupid. And so when they see this and they see my schools, my accolades, and whatever it may be, no matter how much I try to church it up, and no matter how corporate I try to make my resume, nobody wanted me. And so it came to a point where I was asking my parents for, for money. I pulled out personal loans just to pay my rent because it was that bad off. Thankfully, I've bounded back from that. And thankfully, I've, you know, kind of found a, a new lease on, on what I want to do and, and how I want to live my life from here on out. But that was a learning experience. And so that kind of falls into the whole article that I wrote with, uh, on, on my crypto site where it's like you can be great and don't let these things get you down because we have dealt with way more difficult shit in our entire military career, losing a friend, um, going on one of the most difficult missions where you're just getting your butt pummeled by enemy fire. Like that stuff sucks. And you guys came out on top. So there's nothing to say that you can't come out on top now. And it's more or less just kind of like a rally cry and, and, and a motivational blog for me to kind of Anybody that's down, any veteran that's down, any soldier that's down, like pick yourself back up, throw away those BS drugs that the VA has given you and, and carry on, dude. Like you, you can be great again. Don't, don't let this transition into, in, into civilian life let you feel like, like you're done. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting like for you know, someone who is in a hiring manager or something at a job who really doesn't know anything about the military except for you know, the movie American Sniper or something like that, just as an example. 
uh, they'll see that, and it, it really wouldn't translate um, well into in, into their brains, you know. But you know, I, I, and this is something I've I've had a discussion with someone about before, and I, I think the military should come up with a system where they, uh, you know, like something along the lines of they like transfer over your skills in in some way and into some kind of, uh, uh, you know, like a diploma or something that can show a hiring manager, can show a job that, yeah, you were uh, a sniper section team leader. And that means that you had eight highly skilled individuals under your command and you guys were basically executing the foreign policy of the United States of America in a very austere environment, it was very dangerous, and people were dying, and you were responsible for people's lives. And I think that's something that is should be highly accredited. You know, like you you should come out, and a hiring manager should see that and go, "Whoa, you know, this is the guy we want," because this guy has really achieved something that was very difficult to do, and he's he did it in a profession where men die young. You know, and and I think that's something that the military should look into because, it, you know, that's no small feat, you know. And, you know, I, it should be something that should be a positive in helping you getting a job versus a negative. I agree. Not only does the military have a lot that they need to work on as far as helping veterans transition back in, into civilian life. And, and they, they've tried to institute programs. Don't get me wrong. They have um, – God, what is it called? I can't think of it off the top of my head. But they, they have uh, resume writing classes when you're transitioning out, um, job interview classes and, and things like that. So they are doing some good. But the problem is, which I have to give credit where credit is due, and I might get a lot of hate mail for this, but Michelle Obama helped push the whole veterans hiring preference thing within the country during uh, President Obama's uh, you know, stint as a president. And unfortunately, what she realized, financial, um, like, she wanted to be like, okay, if you guys hire veterans and you try to hire veterans, we will give you a tax break or we will give you money, whatever it may be. And she realized that, that these funds coming in, into small businesses and large businesses, whatever it is around the country – Whatever it takes in order to get veterans into jobs needs to happen because – and that was always my thing when, when I was applying to jobs. I'm like, listen, just give me a chance. Like, please, I know that I might not fill every qualification you guys have for this job. I don't have an MBA. I don't have you know, a bachelor's degree. But you know what I do have is I have eight years of leadership experience. I have eight years of – experience working in highly stressful environments, making snap decisions, which this isn't a snap decision of like, oh man, you, you know, put these papers in the wrong filing desk. Like, no, these are snap decisions of these dudes would have been shot in the face. So to not want to hire us, I I can't necessarily grasp, but at the same time, I'm not a civilian. So going back on it, like I said, I have to give Michelle Obama a little bit of credit for pushing the veterans hiring preferencing with throughout the country and helping to try to get veterans on their feet because we are the most capable 
strong, like mentally tough individuals that I've ever met in my entire life. And granted, it's not all of us, you know, you can't speak in generalities, but we are. And I can promise you that you take any Chauncey out of college with a degree to go work in marketing or social media advertisement or real estate or whatever it may be, if you interview and you put a veteran on a probationary period at your company, I guarantee you, you're going to see the difference in those two people. And you're probably going to take the veteran over the other person because we know what it takes to get the job done and we're willing to do that. So it's, it's there, but we're just not, we're not afforded the opportunity as much as we should be. Yeah. And after what, 15 years of war, um, well, it, you know, it, it's hard to say because it's the war is continuing, and it's a, it's a different kind of war than than has been fought, uh, you know, in the last two hundred years or so. But with you know the war dragging on this long, that means that there's a lot of veterans getting out of uh, the military and going into the private sector, and um, you know, in, in one area that we've seen a plus as a result of that is the the medical field. In uh, like trauma medicine and things like that, uh, a few episodes ago, I had um, a Sark on uh, special corpsman, special reconnaissance corpsman uh, with Marsock, and then before that, I had another guy on from the Crisis Applications Group, and they're both medics, uh, highly trained medics, and they were talking about this, and uh, one of the main beneficiaries of the veterans transitioning out and into these fields uh, have been first responders, uh, you know, with with learning how to apply tourniquets and things like that. So you you will see some positives of uh, veterans transitioning into the civilian sector out of the military, but you know, obviously, we'd like to see more of that. Um, and that's good for them, and 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 they. They deserve that. And that's absolutely true is what you just said, because every single medic that I had served with that has gotten out of the military is incredibly successful in the medical field, still in the medical field right now to this day. What are they are currently contracting as a PMC like I am? Um, They're making more money than any of us, which rightfully so. And in the civilian sector, I got uh, two medics that I served with that are living in Colorado right now that are kicking ass in the medical field because of their training. Because I don't want some EMT school grad. I want an EMT school grad that operated in Iraq and Afghanistan, like literally patching, like applying tourniquets on missing limbs over and over. And even doing not necessarily somewhat experimental medicine but doing medicine that wouldn't be legal in the States because they're trying to save innocent Afghani lives that were accidentally hit by IEDs. They were accidentally shot by Taliban. So you have relatively unqualified individuals being medics applying or, or conducting tracheotomies, uh, crikes, uh, doing uh, chest needle decompressions on these individuals, which in the civilian states would not be okay. But under the division of, of, of a doctor and a PA, they're allowed to, to practice this type of medicine in these environments because we're trying to save Afghani lives or Iraqi lives. You know what? I want that guy. Absolutely, I want that guy under my watch because 
he has all the experience of a six-year person on the ER ward than, you know, like I said, some EMT guy coming straight out of school. So I noticed that, that the medics definitely benefit uh, from their prior experience in the military transition in, into the civilian world. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't that intelligent when I signed up, and that wasn't an option. So I went in and they said, hey, you want to be a cook or a grunt? And I said, grunt. And, you know, then I ended up picking the, the reconnaissance and sniper route later on. And as cool as it is when you're in the military, it doesn't pay off for shit once you're out. So anybody that's listening, take note. It, it sounds cool, but you're going to have to have a plan B when you get out as far as what you're going to do. Because uh, being a sniper, doesn't, it doesn't work out well in Northern America. Okay, so Nick, can, we, can you give the audience a, a small story from uh, combat, so maybe a mission or a patrol or something like that? Um, just for the audience to, you know, hear some of what it's like to be out there. Yeah. So one that comes to mind, uh, once again, Ramadi 2006, kind of like my last time, it was, it was a very connected tour. So I have all kinds of sweet stories from there. Um, just as previously we're working in SEAL teams, uh, at the time me and my platoon were staying at this little outpost in the middle of the city called Eagle's Nest. And so we're in Eagle's Nest. And we were doing rotations on guard posts uh, around the uh, little house. I mean, this is right in the city, so it's not like we had a military installation or anything like that. We were living in an Iraqi house, and we had cornered off like four or five other Iraqi houses right around us and put up these big old T-walls or like concrete barriers around us. And so we had elevated positions on the houses in kind of like a, a horseshoe shape around us. So we were in there, and it's at about 4 a.m., and I was in the talk at the time, and uh, the SEALs called up. Uh, I'm not sure which team it was, three or five. And they called up and said that they were conducting operations in our AO, area of operations, roundabouts in Papa 10, which Papa 10 was a sector that we had designated within the city. And the, the city was broken down into like kind of like a grid. And Papa 10 was one of the most kinetic ones that we had at the time. And uh, so we're like, all right, cool. And so SEALs went in started doing their operations. They infilled it at night, like I said, it was 4 a.m. Um, so it was still dark out. They got up on the roof and uh, we're, we're posted up and ready to go. And what their mission at the time was, as soon as the sun came up, because they were in the sector of Papa 10, they had eyes on this entire area of operations and anybody with a gun was going to get shot. And they were pretty much up there just for terrorist elimination is, is pretty much all it was. And uh, so they're posted up on the roof, and, and uh, as soon as the sun would come up, especially in this area, as soon as the sun would come up and anybody from Al-Qaeda would see Americans operating, like, you will get to a firefight. I can promise you this. And that was the same to say for the Iraqi army at the time. Daylight operations were nil just because the, of the amount of contact that we would get in. So sun came up. And I just so happened to be up at a guard post at the time, and I just start hearing gunfire. And it was rapid gunfire. And I'm like, oh, snap. So I call it up on the radio. I'm like, hey, guys, call down my to, to the talk. I'm like, I got uh, sporadic gunfire in the city of Papa 10 to my, uh, what was it at the time, northwest. I'm like, all right, roger. And so and it ends up getting more and more deep, and then I start hearing explosions. And I end up rotating off a shift, and I come down into the talk, 
And instead of dropping all my gear and kind of chilling out, eating some muffins, drinking some some uh, Red Bulls or whatever, my platoon sergeant who was in the talk is like, hey, don't de-gear. We might have to go out. I'm like, all right, cool. So I'm sitting there in the talk and I'm hearing on the radio the whole time uh, that they're talking to the SEALs. And SEALs are like, listen, like we're getting hammered right now. Uh, stand by. We might need your assistance. So I was in a mechanized uh, infantry unit at the time. So we had Bradleys, which have 25 Mike Mike Bushmaster cannons on top. Well, then the SEALs called and they're like, hey, listen, we took severe casualties. We need you guys to come get us and, and exfil us. Roger that. And so my platoon started, I grabbed a bunch of us up, uh, rolled out, went to go and snag up the SEALs. And what had happened is the SEALs are on top of this roof, getting into a gunfight. And a uh, terrorist individual came up right under the base of the roof, out of the vision of the guys that are on top of the roof, and threw up a hand grenade. And this hand grenade landed on top of the roof just as he had thrown it and blew up and ended up taking out a massive chunk out of the thigh of uh, one of the team guys that was up there. And then uh, it just wounded him terribly, terribly, ruptured his, his full moral and then hit another individual, another team guy and ended up taking heavy, heavy chunks out of his body as well. And so these guys were sucking. Luckily, uh, the team guys out there got tourniquet supplied, stopped the bleeding, so they were stable for the, for the time being. So we dropped the ramp on the Bradley. The, the 25 Mike Mike on the, on the Bradley just started hosing away, trying to find anywhere and everywhere uh, the enemy gunfire could be from, coming from in order to kind of help lull the attack. All those guys ended up jumping in the back of the Bradley we all buttoned up. We got the casualties in there, and we drove back to Eagle's Nest. We dropped a raft in Eagle's Nest, and we had already called the Kazavak, so we already had more vehicles on the way in order to kind of exfil us out because helicopters weren't an option at the time. It was just too condensed of a city. And I just remember seeing these guys that we had just rescued. And in my eyes, and don't get me wrong, I did, with all the notoriety that SEALs have been getting, like I don't want to inflate their ego anymore, but the guys are squared away. And I had seen these guys, I was a private at the time, and I'd seen these guys just being bosses. I mean, they were, they were unbelievable, they were great at, at their operations, and they were kick-ass. And, and I, I looked up to them. So these guys are just screaming and get, getting their wounds patched up, and they're just wrecked. And so I'm trying to do everything that I can to kind of help get the, get the litters in the 113, getting them exfilled, getting them out of there. We get them buttoned up. Uh, they take off back to Camp Corregidor uh, for... A medevac can get in the helicopter and get taken to the proper medical care. Both of them ended up living, by the way, which is good. So I remember after that, my platoon sergeant was like, hey, listen, like, I need you to clean up this Bradley. And I looked, and there was blood everywhere. So what we did is we cut this garden hose in half and ended up having to siphon the blood. Because on a Bradley in the back where you carry troops, you can carry ammo underneath the floor. And so we'd put the hose down there because there's probably – three or four inches of blood in the back. And so we're having to siphon the blood out of the back. Well, then I got, I, I came out, my squad leader grabbed me. He's like, Hey, we might have to go back out. I'm like, all right, cool. So I turn around and they go in this little courtyard and the rest of the team that we had extracted off the roof was out there. And I'll never forget this. I will absolutely never forget. This is their commander. He was a captain, didn't have his shirt on. Uh, and so he was completely bare chested, but he has his plate carry on and his plate carry is thrown up over, but he had a through and through wound in his chest that was patched up with gauze and bandage. And 
I just remember hearing one of the guys on the team be like, hey, sir, like, you, you good? He's like, yeah, 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 I'll be fine. Well, and I'm looking at this guy, like, this big barrel chested SOB, like, just took a round of the chest through and through, patched it up, and he's getting ready to go out and conduct another mission. It's kind of like a, like a, like a screw you, like, this is our area of operations. We're going to push you up out of here. So I'll never forget that as long as I live. And we ended up having to burn a bunch of our, a bunch of our camis and stuff like that just because of all the blood. Um, but between siphoning three and four inches of blood out of the back of the Bradley and then seeing their, their team commander with, you know, a gunshot wound to his chest and he's growling his guys, motivating his guys to go back out because they're about to go wreck house. I, I, I was pretty impressed, man. And as an 18 year old E2, um, it really stood out to me and it was that kind of leadership that helped mold me later on in life. Yeah, that, that's a crazy story, man. And I know during those days at that time and where you were at, uh, things were pretty hectic and, um, you know, crazy for the, the Iraqi military and, and the American military as well. And, and to my defense, now that I actually think about it, I was reading Marcus Luttrell's book later on um, after, after Lone Survivor. I don't remember exactly which one it is. He only came out with two, but it was the last one. There is an entire... I don't know, probably six pages in the book devoted to that entire story. Um, talking about that because apparently Marcus's brother was in that team. His name's Morgan uh, was in that team at that time when that had happened. And after that had happened, one of the team guys, one of the seals on that team gave me their patch that they would wear on their shoulder, which is a Viking with like a Viking helmet. He had a big old beard and red eyes and I had that. I still had that patch to this day, and I never knew where it was from, who it was, or anything like that. And in Marcus's last book, you'll see him sitting on a cut, and he has that same patch on. And so when I was reading that book, and I saw that, I DM'd his wife, Marcus, Marcus Luttrell's wife, on Instagram with a picture of my patch, and I said, "Hey, I just." you know, kind of want to tell you a quick story and kind of get a little bit of background on this patch because I know nothing about it. And so I sent that to her and she replied and she's like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. Yeah. So that was SDV one and gave me the whole background on the patch and, you know, kind of thank me for being there and, and helping out. And it was just, so it, it was kind of like reassurance, like, well, you know, that's good. Like, that's sick. And, and I'm glad everything worked out. She told me that, that those two guys were still alive because I didn't hear anything else after that until uh, Marcus's wife told me that they were both good and they were, they were still kicking. So uh, That's awesome, man. So. All right, so, so Nick, can we talk a little bit about your company? Um, what is your website for listeners who are interested? So my website is cryptostrategic.com, and that's K-R-U-P-T-O, strategic. Okay, so... So what do you got coming up? Uh, let's talk more about your company. So when I first started the company, I wanted to kind of go with this business model of very little capital, uh, starting with pre-orders and kind of building up the company from there. And it's worked out well. But the supply and demand and uh, my very limited amount of capital being invested in the company has kind of caught up to me. And, and the demand is a lot larger than I thought that it was going to be, which is a good problem to have. Uh, I get emails constantly, messages constantly, comments constantly. Be like, bro, like you need stuff in stock. You need to like, I, I really want your stuff. And so I've come to a point where I'm like, okay, um, 
about to take on an investment in order to build up all my stock of everything that I've been designing. So I come out with a very high quality, high end pair of denim jeans uh, meant for everyday wear, but still retain the capabilities to help the operator working abroad in austere environments. Um, I've done a belt. I've I still do clothing, t-shirts. It's it's more or less like a lifestyle brand, contradictory to the normal status quo that you would see within uh, the firearms industry. Um, and on top of all of that, I have been working closely with a good friend of mine on building two custom uh, precision rifles. One of them is going to be a multi-caliber, interchangeable caliber, bolt-action rifle on a custom-designed aluminum chassis system that him and I have both designed. And we're really going to market this and tailor this towards law enforcement due to the fact that the main caliber that we want to use is going to be 300 blackout. Uh, now, 300 blackout isn't exactly a precision rifle cartridge, but if you were talking 700 meters and in, uh, the kinetic energy is a lot better than what you would normally expect it to be. And in my opinion, for law enforcement, it would be an end-all, be-all type of weapon platform. Um, I'm also in talks with a good buddy of mine at a very popular uh, firearms company that I don't necessarily want to drop their name yet, but I am working on a custom uh, precision rifle series-esque gas gun. So in the precision rifle series, you will see, for the most part, nothing but bolt-action rifles. And as much as I love my bolt actions, I think that if somebody could come out with a gas gun, an AR-15 type platform or an AR platform uh, that was capable of competing with the proper caliber, uh, that you could pretty much pro probably sweep the floor. And so that's something that we've been working heavily on. I also have a custom knife coming out from a local knife maker in San Diego that I'm good friends with, uh, has, is, is very well known uh, and has a great, uh, a great reputation. And then I'm also working on a automatic watch. And I know it kind of seems like it's spanning the gamut of like, what the hell do you do? But I really just enjoy finely crafted things. And whether that's watches, knives, guns, clothes. And so I want to offer that to my customer base. And uh, so I've been working really hot and heavy on that. The site's going to be rebuilt and these products are just absolutely going to kick ass. And uh, so you should probably look for that in probably about the next three months. Awesome. Uh, and, and you also promote and post and talk about some of this stuff on social media. What are your social media handles for the listeners? So we are Crypto Strategic on Facebook. Um, not, nothing outside of that. And then on Instagram, we are Crypto, K-R-U-P-T-O underscore strategic. And uh, I welcome everybody that's listening to this. Please, please, please uh, go to the blog and, and check out the blog. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you want to hear um, me write about. Let John uh, know that, that what, what you want to hear me write about. And, uh, you know, we'll kind of get after it. But I'm really curious to hear what you guys have to say as far as, especially the article that we talked today, the societal alienation. So... And what do you have an email address where people can email you directly with questions or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. So it's going to be N as in November, and then B E T T S at cryptostrategic.com. And that's Bats or Bravo Echo Tango Tango Sierra for all you guys that understand the phonetical alphabet. Okay, great. Um, 
and you know, and I, I would advise all the listeners to check him out. Um, it, it's all interesting stuff. His articles are interesting. Uh, Nick is a great guy. Um, so with that, we'll close out for this episode. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. I have two Instagram accounts. The first one is IG Recon. The second one is Global Recon underscore Inc. <clears throat> I'm on Twitter at IG Recon, and I'm also on LinkedIn at Global Recon. If you have any questions or anything like that, you can send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net. Um, I advise, and I, I hope that you guys would subscribe and download and comment on iTunes, and that that way that leaves the Global Recon podcast in the uh, top five, top ten ranks in the government and national categories. Uh, so we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.